From interviews and investing to careers and credit, we've got you covered. WalletWatch is a podcast brought to you by MSU Federal Credit Union and OU Credit Union. We'll be interviewing industry experts, sharing personal stories, and even playing some fun games. Delivering financial topics in an enjoyable and interesting way. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica. And I'm Amanda. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, Wallet Watch listeners. We are in the studio today with a very special guest. So I would like to take a moment and introduce her. Angela Orta, LMSW, is a founder of The Illuminated Mind, and she is also a mental health professional who we are going to be interviewing today as part of our season, which has been family finances and health. So Angela, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to have you here. So just give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself before we get into our questions. Okay. Well, I'm a mother and a grandmother, animal lover, and I'm a mental health professional here in the Tri-County area. I'm, um, my office is based in Okemos, and I, I love the work that I do. What's your favorite thing about the work that you do? Seeing the changes that people make in their lives. So. I started therapy in my early 20s, and it was really life-changing for me. And so seeing that for the people that I work with, seeing people become empowered and taking care of themselves, learning how to love themselves in order to find themselves, ground themselves, but also be the best that they can be for everybody else, that's really, really rewarding. And I like giving back, you know? Absolutely. I feel like if that was so life-changing for you, it kind of comes full circle when you can help be that aha person for so many individuals. Well, we are so excited to have you on our show today to kind of pick your brain and interview you. Um, When we were thinking through this episode, we really wanted to kind of debunk some of the stigmas that rely around mental health. You know, I think For so many generations, people were considered weak if they went to therapy or they were, you know, weak if they couldn't manage their mental health on their own. And I think we are finally getting to a point in society where people are starting to understand that, like, it's okay. You don't have to go through these things alone. And sometimes therapy, like you said, is so empowering that it allows individuals to speak to somebody who's unbiased, who's there just to listen, who's there to help them think about different things. Right. So first of all, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So this is a great time to be talking about this, but certainly I view mental health as mental and emotional fitness. There seems to be a lot of stigma attached with mental health and we usually correlate that with mental illness. And so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of debunking. You know, we read things about it, we see it in TV and movies, but it never really looks like that. There are plenty of functional people who have mental health issues on a wide spectrum of of things. So 
I really find it very important to talk about it as much as possible. I have clients who will openly talk about having anxiety disorders or being in therapy or, or things that they've learned in that process. And I think that's a really good way to eliminate some of the taboo surrounding it. But certainly, you don't have to be in crisis. There doesn't have to be a death, a divorce, anything like that. It really should be mental and emotional fitness for most of us. I love that. That's kind of like that first misconception that we wanted to get your opinion about. So I appreciate you sharing on that. The other one that we have down for kind of a misconception about mental health and taking care of your mental health is some individuals might view it as a personality weakness or character flaws when they're going through mental health problems and that these individuals might be able to just snap out of it. Right. So I see that a lot with anxiety disorders, with depression, and with ADD, ADHD. It's very interesting, but the people around us might not know that we're suffering. Again, most people, because of media, believe like if you're depressed, you're in a dark room, you don't go out, you don't do things. But there are plenty of people who have functional depression, functional anxiety, things like that. And what I often see people come to me in the beginning, they feel like it's some kind of moral flaw or a lack of fiber, you know, that sort of thing. They just can't do life the way everybody else does. And that's, that's sad to me because, again, going back to mental health being taboo, we don't talk about it. And so they feel alone and isolated, which then can make them feel more depressed, more anxious, that sort of thing. For people with ADD, ADHD, and sometimes undiagnosed, that's, you know, more common nowadays. We see that a lot where they feel like, why can I put the laundry in the washer, but I forget to get it out of the dryer? You know, I'm constantly losing my keys or my phone, or I'm always late, things like that. And that can, you know, wreak havoc on them, their sense of their confidence. Sure, absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stereotypes that come along with mental health issues. Like I think a lot of people think you're weak. They think you're lazy. You just need to get out of bed and you just need to do things. But I don't think some people understand that that annihilating feeling of like you just can't. So like how would you explain to someone that is going through mental health, like how would they explain something like that to their family to get maybe some understanding or reaching out for support? Because I feel like if they're taking the first step to come and see you as a patient, right? Starting with therapy, they're gonna have to turn to their family for support as well too, right? I just, I feel like it's a bigger support system. So that's really tricky. There are some people who still come see me in secret, so their families don't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen often, but it does happen. I have certain people that have maybe not wanted to be seen in the waiting room or, or things like that because there is stigma there. It's very difficult to change that pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of thinking, mm -hmm. which a lot of us have talked about we espouse in, in many areas. We don't all have the same bootstraps. 
we don't have the same boots. And so to say that to somebody, to tell them that it's just a matter of them trying harder is very demeaning and it doesn't foster empowerment. And so really what I like to tell people is you do what you can do. You do it day by day, small steps at a time. Mental health isn't something that you do just when you have time or once a week with a therapist. It's something that you should be doing every day. Absolutely. Looking at it as, like you had mentioned earlier, as your overall health, your mental and emotional health is just as important as your physical health and the health by the foods that we put into our bodies. I feel like it kind of goes full circle there. Absolutely. So can you help maybe myself and our listeners figure out how to navigate if they're looking to try and work on their mental health? There's lots of different forms. You know, there's therapists, psychologists, life coaches. Can you help us go through that process of what it's like to look and find someone to work with when you want to bring in that extra person to support that mental health? So I think it's just a matter of figuring out what you want and what's going to work best for you because certainly what works for one person doesn't work for another. So for people like life coaches and things like that, I think more of physical fitness people, professionals who are helping you with your physical fitness, right? Life coaching, I've had clients that specifically do career coaching things like that to help them find, maintain jobs or maintain upward mobility in their chosen profession. Therapy is a little bit different. You're, You're looking to talk about things, whether it's a crisis thing or you just need someone to talk with and get things outside of yourself. And then along with that, you have to kind of figure out what's the best fit for me? What am I looking for in a therapist? Do I want someone who's older or younger? What kind of style do they have? Do you want someone who's just gonna give you a lot of direct advice and homework? Or do you want someone who's gonna help you think a little bit more about your options and empower you to make decisions? I mean, there's a lot to consider when you're trying to figure out what help is best for you. What I always tell people is that if it doesn't work, give it, you know, a few sessions. And if it doesn't work with whoever, keep looking. It's not going to be offensive to anybody, but therapy won't be therapeutic if you don't have some kind of bond, some kind of connection with your provider. Thank you for that advice. I I can see how that's going to be really helpful for, for people just like, not feeling like you failed because you didn't find the right therapist to help you right away and just keep being encouraging to look for the right fit. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And and figuring out, you might not know going into therapy what kind of style you really appreciate. So I think that's really important. Feel a connection. If you feel a connection, if you feel like you're being heard, if you feel like your needs can be met and you like the way the individual interacts with you, that's a good sign. For sure. Absolutely. Well, when someone has realized or they want to take the step, they, you know, I'd like to start therapy. I think this is something that could benefit for me. How does one get started? 
There are many ways. A lot of primary care physicians will give you referrals, things like that, to therapists that they know in the area. I know a lot of people do word of mouth, so if you have a friend who saw someone, they'll say, well, let me talk to this person and see if they have any recommendations, or they say you should go see this person specifically. You know, that's a good way. But there are plenty of other ways. So psychology today is a big one. You can go in and search by geographical location, condition, insurance, being covered, that sort of thing. So that's a really helpful thing. And in psychology today, everybody has a bio. So you can read a little bit about the person. It gives you like something to go on and pick the ones sure. that you like and then make a phone call. Chat with them, ask them questions, think about some questions to ask, that sort of thing. And they should be asking you questions too. I know I do that when someone calls me. The other thing is you can do an internet search. You know, Google is great for that sort of thing. So you can, you know, look at that type of thing. The other thing is there are other organizations like the National Institute for Mental Health, things like that where they have categories where you can go in and find a provider. And then last but not least, reach out to your insurance provider. They have a list of people who would be in network with you and they will work with you to help you find someone. Awesome. That was going to be a follow-up question that I have is, do you see a lot of insurances that cover mental health therapy? Yes. So most do. Most of the major ones do. It's just a matter of what plan do you have? What kind of deductible or copay do you have? That's all, you know, something to consider when going into therapy. But yes, most of the major healthcare insurance providers do cover mental behavioral health. That's amazing. Yes. Again, for the benefit of our listeners, maybe we have some listeners who've never gone to therapy. They've never met with a therapist. Can you talk us through what, I don't know, I don't want to use the word typical because I don't feel like there might not be a typical session, but what are some of those things that, like the format of it or the flow that might be typical or you mentioned kind of homework. I don't know if that's something that you do with your patients as well. Can you just tell our listeners what they might expect in a, a session? Right. Well, I can only tell it from my perspective, yes. um, how I do it. My first contact with someone is they reach out. They either make a phone call or they send me an email or they message me through my website and I contact them back. I ask for a specific time to speak with them on the phone. I want them to have a chance to ask me some questions and I want to ask them some questions to make sure that we're a good fit on my end. So I wanna make sure that it's something that I treat. There are certain things that I don't treat and certain things that I do. And, and that's gonna be the same for most practitioners that you see. That's the first contact and I, at that point, just say, you know, can you tell me a little bit about what you'd like to be seen for? You don't have to go into great detail, but I need to make sure we're a good fit. You know, I ask them, you know, a few questions, that sort of thing, and then give them, again, like I said, the opportunity to ask me some questions. After that, the next step is for my clients, I have them fill out paperwork. I ask them a lot of questions. I have them rate some things for me so that 
going into that first session, which is always different than any consecutive session, I know, okay, they've said they're struggling with this or they're having problems in this area of their life. So it gives me an understanding of what's going on, not just what they're saying to me, but then I'm seeing how does it impact their daily living? How is it impacting how they are moving through the world or they're experiencing the world? And so that way I can go on and formulate some kind of treatment plan, diagnoses that has to be submitted to insurance for it to be paid for, but it gives me a better understanding of what brought them there. I also, at that first session, we go through the paperwork, I explain the process, I try to make them comfortable. So I tell my clients, you know, there's nothing that you're gonna say here that I haven't heard before because I've been doing this many years. And there's certainly nothing that you're gonna say to me that makes me think less of you as an individual, right? Because I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about some of those things or there is this fear of negative evaluation, especially from a stranger. So I try to make them that comfortable and I tell them, you know, don't be afraid of crying. People cry in here every day. I do this every day. So while this is new for you, it isn't for me. And so trying to make them just feel comfortable, that sort of thing. I also tell them I'm not incredibly formal. So if you have questions or whatever, jump in, ask me questions. If you don't want to answer one of my questions because it's too traumatic or you just, it's new for you, you don't have to. That's what sure. I do. So, and then um, we go from there. So we lay the groundwork. I tell them kind of what to expect, ask them what they want. That's huge, you know, not just, I have to meet someone where they're at. I, it's not my, I don't tell you what I think your goal should be. You tell me, what do you want? And we'll work on that. And even if I see that, hey, this person's a heavy smoker or, and they're telling me they wanna get more healthy, I might say, well, if you want to get more healthy, you might consider, you know, doing, you know, decreasing your smoking or stopping altogether. But if that's not their goal, I don't spend time on it. It's not my job sure. to tell you what you need to work on. I, I'm here to work for you. I appreciate that, you know, because like we were talking about when people come in and they're not really sure what to expect and taking that first step, I feel like is huge. Yes. That's a huge accomplishment. And then to just kind of start unpacking all of these things, these maybe traumas that they've had, maybe the shame that they've been walking around with, that's a lot. And it's nice to kind of know like what a typical session would look like, what, you know, how you would go ahead and get started. Because I think that's what a lot of people fear is they fear just the getting started part. Absolutely. And especially if they've never had experience before with therapy, it's, it's, very, it's very different. One of the things that I like about my practice is that, you know, in some larger organizations, you're going to have an intake coordinator who does an initial intake. And then, so you're filling out paperwork and talking with them, but you're not actually going to be doing therapy with them. So then you go to your next appointment and you see the therapist. For some people, that's okay, and I'm, I'm not bashing that in any way. But what I like is when you go to smaller practices, you can kind of start right there. It's something that I find very valuable in building trust, but also being human to other people is 
making that first initial contact and then you're that same person all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And that's huge in, in putting people at ease with the process because it is difficult. And in that first session, I might be asking some really difficult questions or very personal questions, especially if someone's coming to me about trauma. Sure. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, Angela, that, you know, different therapists can specialize in different things. Are there any special interests that you specialize in that you work with your patients on? My special interest is trauma. So initially I went into this field to work with children. I came from a grossly disorganized and abusive background family of origin. And so it was really important to me to have like early intervention, that sort of thing. And so I went into this field to work with children and I very quickly learned that that was too difficult for me. It was very hard for me to not take that home. And so I don't see yeah. anyone under the age of 13 at this point. I have biases just like anybody else does. So it was very difficult for me to work with a child and then send them back into a family where maybe I, according to me, I didn't feel like the parents were doing what they needed to do. And, and that's not gonna be helpful for a child or for the family. So. I decided that that's maybe work that I shouldn't do, but I see a lot of adults who've experienced childhood traumas, sexual traumas, things like that. And that's where I really enjoy doing a lot of work because we're not statistics and we don't have to lead lives evocative of the statistics. I want people to feel empowered. You know, we always hear about the sad stories where, you know, someone ends up institutionalized or struggling with addiction or, or something else um, or commit suicide. You know, we hear all of those sad stories, but we never talk about all of the people who've had traumatic experiences, including early on, who go on and lead happy, healthy, successful lives full of love. And I, I, I want that for people. So that's my big thing but I work with all kinds of things. Yeah, wow, that's, I'm sitting here and thinking about like, if I was in your shoes watching somebody who first came to you, dealing with all of these traumas and all of these things going on and working with you, you know, for years, like how priceless is it to be able to see somebody go who comes to you in an emergent form and watch them evolve into this beautiful new person who's working on healing and who's getting their life back, like that's got to feel priceless. It is, and it's a, it's a good way to give back. I mean, there were people there for me who did that for me. And I can't, I can't thank them enough for how they helped me because I was, I was sure that I was at a very young age, I, I had believed that I was going to lead a life evocative of the statistics. So I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have children because I was afraid that I would repeat a cycle of abuse. And lucky, I sought therapy and had an amazing experience with the two therapists that I've worked with. And I've had over 30 years of therapy and it was life-changing for me. Having someone believe in me 
wanting the best for me, helping to empower me and learn to love myself was huge. And so doing that work, paying it forward is, is big for me. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, that, that full circle. Absolutely. So I kind of want to go back to, you know, our conversation at the beginning, we're talking about the stigmas or misconceptions around mental health and, you know, hopefully, and maybe we're starting to see this momentum in society of shifting that. What are some things that we can do to support any of our loved ones with their mental health, whether it's in times when they're struggling or in those times when you were talking about viewing it as a fitness that you want to always just keep that mental health going and taking care of it. Right. I think it starts early on. We need to have conversations, use language, you know, talk about emotions. There's more than just happy, sad, angry, you know, that sort of thing. So having conversations with our children. I know one of my granddaughters, uh, she's my spiritual mini me and she so she's a sponge for other people's emotions she feels things very deeply and she's very demonstrative with her emotions so you put that with a two and a half and three-year-old and she's eight now <laughs> but when she was two two to three I mean she would have these like you know little meltdowns and I was always very impressed with how my daughter and her husband handled it. They didn't lean into her chaos and they just helped her to calm down. And so I was getting a massage one day and there was this little yoga book that they had in their shop area and it was for kids. And it talked about the different yoga poses and what it could do for you, but it also talked about taking breaths when you're upset. And so I bought the book and gave it to them and we started doing things with her like maybe you need to take some breaths and she would say well I want everyone to take the breaths so we would all whoever was there we would take breaths with her but it was a way of teaching her how to self-regulate but also that it's okay to express your emotions it's just not okay to like kick or scream you know that sort of thing. And, or, or at least in certain ways, you know what I mean? Like you can be loud, but maybe not screaming at the top of your lung in the middle of a restaurant. So right. <laughs> things like that. So I think it starts there. And then further, like checking in with people, again, normalizing, having conversations. How are you doing? How are you feeling? If one of my children tells me that they're feeling stressed, I say, well, do you want to talk about it? Is there anything I can help you with? Or do you just need someone to sit with you, that sort of thing. You don't have to tell me about it if you don't want to, but making yourself available. And if you don't know what to do, say, I don't know how to help you, but I can help you find someone who can, and then help them. Look on the internet, you know, do some of the searches that we talked about, but be open to talking about it and be open to sharing your experiences. I think normalizing this type of thing is huge for people. We're not the only ones struggling with all of these emotions. We all have them. And so, you know, normalizing that for someone makes it so much better. I agree. Listening to the words that you were saying, I started to think about in my own therapy 
sessions that I have been in, I'm starting to learn how to practice the pause. I'm very much so a problem solver. So Amanda, when you asked that question, you know, sitting there and you said just being there for somebody and like, do you need me to help problem solve this or do you just need me to be someone who hears you? And that is something that I have learned in my adult life that I just always before I'd always just solve everybody's problems. And it took me a minute to realize that sometimes people just want you to listen. You know, especially like in my marriage and my husband is so amazing now because we had conversation about it where he'll be like, I just need to talk and I just want you to listen. So then I can go, okay, problem solver, turn off (laughs) and be able to be there and just listen. So I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big thing. And I see that a lot with couples, but with people in general, you know, we learn early on that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. Like we all know that, but what we're never told is that emotions have energy and some emotions have more energy than others. And so sometimes we just need to get that energy outside of self. That's why therapy is so important or meditation or writing or drawing or whatever process that you do. It's really important to get that energy outside of yourself, right? So. Who's ever had like a long cry over something and nothing's really changed at the end of that cry, but for some reason you feel a little bit better and cleansed, you know? Yeah. That's why, because you released some of that energy. And it's it's the same thing. If we can get people to do that on a regular basis, a daily basis even, it's helpful. And so sometimes we just need someone to to witness for us. To, to be a sounding board for us. We don't need people to fix our problems, but we, we do need someone to maybe sit with us in that darkness. Yeah, because I think the overall goals, everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be heard. Everyone wants to feel safe. Absolutely. You know, in creating that safe space, I think is, is huge. Thank you for sharing those keys on how to do that. I like what you're saying about the energy and getting, releasing things. And I think for me, just kind of chiming into, it's important to not want to have it be productive or successful. Like I'm so tired of this culture of like hustling and making money and being successful. And it's okay to just do stuff to do it. Absolutely. It's, it's something that I talk with my clients about. We have this obsession with productivity. And what I always challenge my clients on, and, and I'm, you know, I'm here with you. I struggle too, I'm human. But I always challenge my clients on this. What, what does productive mean? Where did you get your definition of productivity from? Is it productive to take a nap when you're tired? Yes. Is it productive to rest when your body is telling you it's been pushed to the limit? Yes. But we often feel guilty. We don't feel entitled to take those breaks when we need to. And so some of what I do is helping people unlearn what they've learned and then relearn life, relearn self in a different, more compassionate way. So it's, you know, not just filtering out negative energy and the things that you get involved with or the people, the interactions that you have, but it's also getting good energy in. That's huge. And 
thinking about that if you think, well, I'm going to get a massage, but that's really, you know, don't know what term I'm looking for, spoiled of me to do, which is not the term, but it's it's not. It's, no, yeah, it's, it's not indulgent at all. It's yes, self-care. indulgent, right? And, and a lot of people think of it that way. So I spend time with my animals. It's something that is a good energy exchange for me. So that's what I do. But if I looked at it from the productivity lens, I could have a million things like laundry, dishes, paperwork, all kinds of things that are calling for my attention. But I'm out at the barn with my horse. And so is it productive? Yeah, for me it is. And it's the most important kind of productivity because I'm taking care of myself and getting that good energy in. I'm not just expending that emotional energy, but I'm also getting good stuff in, which is just as important. Yeah, absolutely. If someone is struggling to figure out like maybe what their things are that help relax them or for self-care or with that, where would you tell somebody to start? So I get that question often from clients. Most clients have an idea of, of what those things are, but some really don't. And maybe it's just a matter of how you're thinking about it or the language. For me, I like when I go to the hairdresser every six to eight weeks or if I get my eyebrows done or something. I know it sounds crazy, but it's really relaxing for me. It's a time where I can sit quietly and be off and I can have conversations if I want to or I can half fall asleep, but it's very relaxing for me. I like reading. I like being outside. I like my animals, like I said, I love, love, love my horse. And so those are things that when I go out and I engage with them, I feel a sense of peace. So who, who's ever gotten a massage before? That kind of calm feeling you get and it lasts with you for a couple of days, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, <laughs> it's my it, favorite. It's like that. Think of things that make you feel like that afterwards because that's letting you know I'm not depleting my energy reserves. I'm stocking up on them. So if, if I come home from the barn, I always am talking to my husband. I love Levi so much, my horse Levi. And I'll say, I just love him so much. And I'm on this like little emotional high. And that's the sign to me that that's something that, that gives me a good energy exchange. I'm I'm getting some energy out of this and it's good energy. So I ask people to do that same thing. What is it for you? It could be completely different than mine and that's okay. Yours could be really going running or cutting, you know, a cord of wood, whatever it is. But if you feel that sense of euphoria, that little that little bit of emotional goodness feel peaceful after certain exchanges, then I think that's the key to finding out what works for you. Yeah, so it kind of goes back to the story you're telling about your granddaughter, like recognizing those basic emotions, those more complex emotions, and then not always thinking and recognizing those hard ones, but trying to flip it and recognize all of those good emotions that we feel throughout the day too. Absolutely. I think that's huge. If we're going to talk about mental health, I know that life is better when I focus on the good. Our brains are hardwired to focus on the negative. And if you think about it, 
over the course of time, if we didn't go out and hunt and gather, we wouldn't eat. You know, so our brains were constantly on what are we lacking? What do we need to do to survive, right? Well, that's not applicable anymore. We have grocery stores, we have things like this. So we just worry about other things. What didn't I do on my to-do list? What didn't I finish? Uh, what do I need to do tomorrow? What's going wrong? And when you focus on that kind of stuff, then you're going to have a negative experience. So I try to focus on what's going well. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention, you know, when things aren't going right, but I try to take a moment out of every day. Well, and it's, it's not like I sit down and think about it. I'm just noticing. I'm so used to doing it. I notice when things are going well. So, for instance, I had three of my grandchildren, and this was several years ago. We went to the children's garden, and one of my granddaughters was just a baby. My oldest granddaughter and my oldest grandson were running around, and I'm sitting in the shade under a tree watching them play, holding the baby. And I was so present in the moment and felt so blessed. And listening to the wind stir the tree and the birds outside and the laughter of my grandchildren was the most amazing experience. And it was something that I had so much gratitude for. But we often don't take those moments to appreciate what's going right. As simple as laughter and the wind rustling the trees. And so that's what I do. I try to focus on that stuff. I love that. I do think being more present when you make the decision to change your life and want to live more in a present instead of, you know, in an anxiety-written manner where you're constantly focused on the future or in a depression-like manner when you're constantly hyper-focused on the past, it allows for those better energy exchanges, which kind of brought me thinking about a question that we have is, you know, we were talking about the good and the bad. We know with the good and the bad comes the word stress, right? For our listeners out there, Angela, how would someone know if the stress that they have in their life is a healthy stress level or if it's kind of teeter-tottering on that potentially hazardous stress level? So like maybe what are some signs or things that our listeners could go, oh boy, I didn't realize that this is maybe as horrendous as it is. Right. Well, that's a that's actually a really good question because often stress is like weight. It kind of sneaks up on you and before you know it, you know, suddenly you're 10 pounds heavier on the scale or 10 pounds lighter, you know, and so it just kind of sneaks up on you. And most people don't recognize the signs. We do have this culture of productivity and that kind of ties into this fast food mentality that we have. We want everything quick, easy, cheap, that sort of thing. We want immediate gratification. And so I think stress levels are very much tied to that. And it's almost invisible sometimes. So what I, and everybody's different, so it takes time. You have to get to know yourself, number one. For me, it's not like I recognize, oh, wow, I'm feeling stressed. For me, I will get a little clumsier. I will combine my words. I'll get more forgetful. 
that sort of thing. And when that starts happening, that's my cue. Oh, I might be a little stressed out. For some people, it's fatigue, and that happens to me too. But for some people, it's fatigue. For some people, it's feeling like they're keyed up or on edge, right? So kind of at the precipice of an irritable. So those are some key hallmarks. But for everybody, it could be very different. And that's why I think it's important to know yourself and, and understand what those signs are gonna be for you individually. But those are some things I, I, it's not uncommon to get forgetful or clumsy for people or to be irritable when they're stressed out. Definitely, if you start feeling burned out and fatigued, and by the time you're feeling burned out, you've been stressed. But what I would say is when you first recognize it, do something about it. Don't wait, do something then. And, and whatever that is, it doesn't mean you have to go get therapy right then, but it, it might mean, hey, I need to not have so many packed weekends. I might need to just have a pajama weekend and watch Netflix. That could be it, but it's taking the time that you need. Yeah, I love all that advice and I can definitely see where having someone to talk about and if you're not sure about checking in with yourself and recognizing that, because you said it's different for everyone, but how much more impactful that could be having that therapist established already to like work through that with someone else that can help you navigate learning more about yourself. Absolutely. and. You know, the last few years have been really stressful for most people. We're, you know, we've had the pandemic, we've had a lot of political turmoil, a lot of, a lot of civil unrest, and it's having an impact. We're, we're seeing a lot of people be very stressed, have burnout. We're seeing kids with the same thing. You know, there was distance learning. Some kids did really well with that. Some kids didn't. Some kids did really well going back to school. Some kids didn't. It was very, very difficult. And so having that language and understanding all of the ways in which stress and anxiety can impact our lives, that's huge. Being able to talk about it, those types of things are big. So having that and then, you know, again, filter out the negative and get the, the good in. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Angela. And I, you know, to our Wallet Watch listeners, I was one of those people that we got married in the middle of a pandemic and <laughs> virtual learning and working at home. And I was one of those people that had a horrible experience with therapy before. And, you know, my husband's like, well, maybe you should try again. And I was like, I'm just not ready. And it took a point for me to be ready for me to, you know, find somebody that I jived with, that I feel comfortable with, that I feel bonded with. And I will say 100% it has made a huge impact in my life. So I just, to our While at Watch listeners, if you ever are teeter-tottering or thinking about therapy or you're scared or you're nervous, just try because it will empower you. It will help you. It will open up so many positive things in your life. Angela, thank you so much. I You have given us so much information, guidance to our listeners today. I think having you on here to wrap up our season was the absolute best episode we could have ended this season with. 
We've spent a lot of time this season talking about mindfulness, talking about being present, how to look at our finances and kind of have like that financial checkup day and the importance of that, right? Just like your mental health, our financial health is important as well. You know, we had conversations about how to communicate. Amanda, what do you think? I think this was like the perfect ending to our season. Yes, I'm really excited about this episode. I've really enjoyed the conversation that we've had today with you, Angela. And I think I'm grateful that we can be this platform. And I loved how you share that like your mental health is a fitness. You have to exercise it and take care of it at any state that it's in. So just give you the opportunity for anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today. Just thanks for having me here and take care of yourselves. You know, it's been said by a very wise person that you as much as anyone in the entire universe are deserving of your love and affection. I know that when I'm taking good care of me, I'm a better wife, a better partner, a better therapist, a better grandmother, a better pet owner. All of the things that I'm going to do starts with me taking good care of myself. So I wish that for everybody. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming, Angela. We really appreciate it. And now it's time for the CU Spotlight. MSU, Federal Credit Union, and OU Credit Union don't just sponsor this podcast. We believe in investing in the community. We have recently established another way of helping, the Desk Drawer Fund, a foundation supporting the MSU, FCU, and OU Credit Union communities. The Desk Drawer Foundation focuses on five philanthropic pillars, arts and culture, stable housing, empowering youth, financial education, and fostering entrepreneurialism. If you'd like to learn more about the foundation or donate, please visit DeskDrawerFund.org. Wallet Watch is written, hosted, and produced by Amanda Khan and me, Jessica Rubio. Our executive producers are Ariana Saldana and Lauren Kolarczyk. Wallet Watch is brought to you by MSU Federal Credit Union and OU Credit Union. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our credit union's website, financial40.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in our next episode.